Hello and welcome to another edition of Bookalicious, the book podcast where we leave no page unturned. I'm Paul Jarrett and in this episode Holly and I chat about novels which feature libraries and librarians, from which a book of the month emerges. Gwyn shares her favourite reads about magic and mythology and Holly and I chat about some of our favourites from our current reading pile. From all this, I hope you are inspired and that you enjoy this episode. If you haven't listened to our last episode, uh, where I interviewed Jennifer Kavanagh about her new book, This Shall Be My Dancing Day, uh, do go and listen to it. It's still there, available for you to listen to. But from that, her main character was a librarian. And that then has triggered me to go and find some uh, lovely online lists of books about librarians or including libraries. Um, Some of them are fantastic and I want to rush away and read and others, well, don't know. I mentioned to Holly a couple of them before we came on. She said, oh, yeah, but wait until I tell you about them. They involve cats, by the way. Uh, But first of all, though, um, our wonderful listener, uh, Pat Bracewell, our writer all the way across there in California. Hello, Pat. She sent two pieces of correspondence. And it's been such a long time, Pat, since we've been able to talk like this. So I, um, I, I'm going to have to respond to some of this. But, but Pat is always very uh, n- nice and very kind about the podcast. Um, she was particularly overwhelmed uh, with our discussion about the Silver Sword by Ian Sorelia, because she'd never heard of it before. And this is what this podcast is all about. It's all about getting uh, books in front of you that maybe you've not come across or thought about reading. She has struggled to find it in San Francisco in her public libraries, uh, but she is on a mission to, to discover it. And uh, she also responded to, we had a long conversation, this is, seems like years ago now, we had a long conversation about children's books and how important it is for adults to read children's books, which she totally agrees. And she's uh, sent a long list. I can't read all of these out, Pat, but, uh, but suffice to say, Pat's favourite children's book of all time is The Secret Garden. And um, we can't deny that that's not a bad choice. However, we do like controversy on uh, Bookalicious. I think at some point I might have said that Lord of the Rings does not fit the category of children's books. I'm not sure. Did I say that, Holly? Do you remember me saying that? Uh, it seems like something you would say. So oh, right. OK, so that's fair enough. OK, it's something I would say. Um, but Pat says, <laughs> in my own mind, It is no more adult than Harry Potter or his Dark Materials. I believe these are books that can be read in childhood and understood simply as good stories full of adventure, mystery and good versus evil with children or hobbits as the heroes. As adults, though, we read them with different eyes because maturity brings experience and awareness that we didn't have as children. We can see layers of meaning that were invisible to us as children. Well, that's fair enough. I, I'm happy. I go with that. In fact, I think, Pat, you have almost changed my mind. It's I a bit I kind big. of agree with Pat. I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I we're agreeing with you. Yeah. And, and I think, I, I suppose the only thing I, I 
would say, and I'd say this of Harry Potter as well, maybe not so much Philip Pullman, but Harry Potter, certainly towards the end, J.K. Rowling's, the length of the books is pretty daunting, even if you're an avid young adult reader. Wouldn't you say, Holly? They're quite pretty big, aren't they? Yeah, I remember I used to have the whole collection on my shelf before I gave them to like a relative, and they're like little bricks. It's mad. Yeah. Um, they do look cool. And, then, I think and, it's a... and Lord of the Rings has got the same sort of issue, I think, when especially when you get the three the three bound together. But um, yeah, I, I, I think we're, we're in danger of categorising too many things. And if you want to read something, have, whatever age you are, you should just read it and enjoy it. However, I haven't finished with you, Pat Bracewell, because um, she we sent we talk a lot about so many books. I'm always surprised if anyone ever listens or takes notice. But she went off and read uh, Matthew Green's Shadowlands and actually really loved it. That was the book that we talked about. I think Lara uh, was reading it that uh, looks at sort of mythology and archaeology in different places around the UK. Basically, she said that she absolutely loved reading it and has left with the sad image of all the population of St Kilda having to finally leave the island Consigning their pet dogs to the sea. Oh, and on that sad note, <laughs> please do keep writing to us, Pat. And you can all write to us if you want to on info at bookalicious.com. It's lovely to have correspondence, isn't it? And uh, yes, right. Now, uh, we are going to move on now, Holly, uh, to um, a little list that I found um about libraries and librarians it was very um good timing by the way um looking at libraries this um this episode because i i think i went i went to the wrexham library for the first time in a while like uh, two days ago or something oh it was just so nice to be back there um yeah it was weird i haven't been there in a long time and i used to go there to study and it made me feel like all grown up and then going to uni, you've got massive libraries, and then coming back, like in a cute way, like smaller, but just cosy. And I've got a soft spot for Wrexham Library, really, because um, <laughs> I tend to go there two or three times a week now. Yeah. Oh, but, I used anyway. to go there all the time when I was younger. I like, and it was really nice seeing how they still, like, have got like a lot of kids' stuff. Like, I was walking out and I saw they have like a whole Barbie stand for like pink books. <laughs> And I'm just yeah. like, oh, I love this. I love when libraries like do loads of stuff for kids because I know you can go there to study and be grown up. But yeah. when I was younger, the library was like a fun, cool place to explore stuff. Yeah. And I like, it still feels like that now, which is cool. I I think um, that's, well, we'll talk about librarians because there's there is an added value that librarians can give because... You know, it's putting those little displays up where you discover books that you'd never have thought of reading before. I'm 21 books about librarians, heroes, lovers, and magicians. We're going we're gonna to look at this uh, list from uh, the Electric Literature, uh, which has got the title of Seven Novels That Reveal Librarians Behind the Shelves, which sounds, but this is quite an interesting list, and it's only seven books. The one that jumped out at me was the one by Patrick DeWitt, because Patrick DeWitt wrote a brilliant book called The Sisters Brothers, which was kind of a Western. Yeah, do you have you 
you read that, didn't you, um, Holly? Yeah, oh. I, I loved it. And I didn't realise who he was until you just said it then, because I saw the list as well. And I was like, that name really rings a bell. Yeah, and I that's who he think is. I love that book. I'm, oh, I'm definitely reading The Librarianist yeah. now. So, so, yeah, so the new book's called The Librarianist, and um, the blurb is, uh, it says, the protagonist of Patrick DeWitt's latest novel both upholds and belies the image of the quiet, quiet librarian. Um, so Bob Comet, great name, retired librarian, I already empathise with him, uh, begins volunteering at the local senior centre to fill the void and he and he's felt that he's felt since retirement we start to learn more about his colorful complex past as he gathers a coterie of interesting new acquaintances around him these mingle and mix with characters from his past to create an engaging read about a seeming introverts far from ordinary life so yeah you know that's kind of a must read because it's anywhere near as good as sisters brothers it's got to be Fantastic, isn't it? Did any of the books on the list catch your eye, um, Holly? Oh, another one of them did, but the only one I wrote down on my little sticky note that I do because I can't remember anything um, was the Librarianist. But there was there was a couple others that that did look cool. Like I just want to read all of them, but I think the reason that that one jumped out to me is because I've seen it in Booker and I really like the the cover of it. Well, the cover is because the mm -hmm. the cover is fantastic, isn't it? It's just like an old library um, issue slip. <laughs> I think the designers have done a great job on it. It's uh, it's brilliant. Well, if I just so a couple of the other ones here, there's um, the Department of Rare Books and Special Collections, which is a seemingly very boring academic title, but uh, this is by Ava. Oh, I'm going to get this wrong, Ava. If you're listening, you your kids something like that, and um, that's about um, University Rare Books Department. And uh, yes. Liesl Weiss is keeping things running smoothly, but her boss, Christopher, incapacitated by a stroke, Lisa, Liesl steps forward to lead right when a rare and valuable manuscript goes missing. And uh, so it's set in a university library. Well, I love that already because um, I haven't worked in university libraries most of my life. But, but I'll put the link to the electric literature um reading list uh, up in the show notes so you can have a look at the rest for yourself the other one that caught my eye is the borrower by rebecca mckay and that's about a children's librarian lucy who takes offense when she learns that her favorite 10 year old patron's mother wants to censor her reading choices and when she finds the boy camping out after hours in the children's room because his parents plan to send him to an anti-gay camp, Lucy takes him on a zany road trip that lands her in the realm of kidnapper, despite her noble intentions. I mean, that, that sounds like it ought to be a movie, doesn't it, really? That is one that did, like you just reminded me, that did kind of catch my eye as well. I don't remember, I didn't remember the title of it, but that blurb, just because like the the kidnapping bit, because I was like, how on earth is that going to play out? And yeah. I, I, I think it's fun as well, like these library things to make them as weird as possible, because like some people assume that librarians are like boring. Those people are stupid because <laughs> librarians like the coolest job. Um, But like, I like that idea of making it weird. But I'm intrigued. I love the whole thing of like banned books. I think that's such an interesting like well I don't love it it's bad obviously but you know what I mean like exploring that is a really yeah yeah 
Yeah, I, I think it's um, you could come up with a really I could come up with a really long list of books about libraries and librarians. And um, they're much under celebrated librarians because we are considered to be uh, quiet in the corner. You know, we don't like to make a noise. But actually, in my experience, most librarians um, really enjoy working with people and um, kind of uh, not. Uh, all deeply knowledgeable but actually kind of know where to find the stuff out that other people aren't quite sure um, where to go with it the, the electric literature blog actually says some very nice things about librarians but um i'll blush if i read them out so uh, I, i'll put the list as i say in the show notes but i just wanted my personal choice um holly and i think just before the show i mentioned this book to you and you said oh that sounds good um, some people will remember this. I think it came out in the in English translation in the late 1970s, probably the early 80s, and it was uh, it's called uh, The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco, made into a not so good film with Sean Connery in it, but it's set in a medieval monastery library with an evil librarian. I don't think I'm giving anything away saying it's an evil librarian and a mysterious book. And lots of monks are beginning to die and nobody knows quite why. And the, the actual way it's worked out is, is brilliant. So it's quite a complex book. It's not don't, uh, the way I described it makes it sound a bit like a, a, a fairly standard murder mystery. It isn't. It's much more complex than that. Um, Umberto Eco was uh, deeply into philosophy and complex ideas and things. And that comes through in the uh, yeah, in the name of the rose. So that would be my pick of a book to, if you really want something set in libraries to, to read. I, I'm tempted, I think I definitely want to make uh, Name of the Rose book of the month this month. See, it, I, I think, because it's kind of gone out of favour. I think it would be good if people were able to go away and find that and read it. And um, yeah, yeah, it's, an, it's a book which you can get totally engrossed in. So there you go. That's how you do book of the month. I'm having a bit of a magic kick at the moment. Um, magic, mysticism, witchcraft, the esoteric, all this kind of thing. And I actually have a pile of about five books here, uh, one of which I've finished reading and the other four, um, three I have on the go and one I haven't started yet. So that, that's that's good for now. And this will keep me going for some time, I think. So it, it kind of started when I went to see um, an exhibition at Tate Modern at the start of July, um, Forms of Life. Um, it's uh, displaying the work of Hilma Afklint and Pete Mondrian. As they were deemed, I think, by the exhibition curators to have a connection, even though they never met, they, they, they did not coincide, their works do not reference each other. Uh, they both had a connection to the natural world, began their careers as landscape painters, but they were interested in mysticism and their work began to take on elements of this in, in varying forms and obviously in their very, very different styles. So one of the books that I have, and it's a nice big chunky one, which I haven't started yet, it is in fact the exhibition catalog. Uh, so I'm really quite looking forward to getting stuck into that. There are obviously many, many, many images of their works contained within it, but there's also a number of pieces, um, short essays, that kind of thing, talking about practice and their influences and how they developed their work throughout their careers and their lives. 
So this is something I really do find very interesting. Um, I enjoy landscape painting and I enjoy that kind of sense of getting to grips with the, the mystic and the esoteric and what might be out there in the beyond human world. So that exhibition catalogue is something I'm really looking forward to getting into. I picked it up from the gift shop at Tate Modern when I was there. Also, at the same time, in the shop, I picked up another book. I, there were so many. I could have just taken anything off the shelves, really, and taken it away and digested it. But another one that really did scream at me to, to be read uh, is entitled Magic. And it's part of a, a series called Documents of Contemporary Art. Oh, other, other, other titles in, in the series include Craft, Health, uh, Memory, Queer, Science Fiction, and so on. So there, there's quite a number of different works looking at, I think, major themes and ideas in contemporary art. So this is, I'm partway through this, I'm about a third of the way through it so far, and it's a collection of excerpts by a number of different writers, artists, magicians, historians, all sorts of people, um, looking at the correspondences between art and magic, or arts um, encounters with magical culture, if you like, and the relationship between the two. So is magic the same as art? Are they very different? What does one have to say to the other and vice versa? It looks at <clears throat> their correspondences also with other, whether you want to call them belief systems, such as religion, philosophy, science. Uh, it's really illuminating. As I say, that all of the, the pieces in the book are excerpts from longer works, and it really makes me want to go off and read a number of these longer works as well. Uh, they, they, it's not just contemporary writings. We, we've got stuff from the beginning of the 20th century, um, possibly further back, I'm not sure. haven't looked in that much detail, but it's really fascinating. I'm loving it so far. It's quite an academic slant and this is giving my brain a nice challenge because I haven't really looked at anything particularly intellectual since I finished my master's a few years ago. So it's quite nice to have something that is really meaty that I can get my teeth into. Um, so that's Magic, uh, edited by Jamie Sutcliffe and it's part of the Documents of Contemporary Art series. I think it's, that's, it's published by Whitechapel Gallery, I think that's the publisher. This then led me on to a book that I picked off my parents' bookshelf some time ago and it again is quite meaty and chunky, not least because it's um, over oh, a bridged edition is 1963 but I think it first published 1922, there we go, and it is the well-known The Golden Bough, A Study in Magic and Religion by J.G. Fraser. Um, I've got this lovely little sticker on the front and it shows how old it is. It's 12 shillings 6d net. Uh, so this did belong to my parents. I don't think they missed it. Um, it's it's <laughs> I've got a little way into it. And again, it's um, quite older language. I'm not going to say archaic, but it's again, it's, it's not a quick and easy read. It's not a, something particularly modern. Uh, it is worth saying, I think, that there are some controversies around Fraser's views uh, as expressed in here and things that he believes himself to have discovered and talks about. So it's not unproblematic, shall we say, within the first few pages I encountered certain writings that would perhaps not be quite so well received today. But in itself, I think it's uh, it's a good collection of um, his his findings about the practices of magic, if you like, in various cultures around the world. Um, a lot of... Okay, I'll read the blurb from the back, actually. It, 
it's saying here when it first appeared in 1890 so I'm completely wrong with 1922 so apologies when it first appeared in 1890 the golden bough burst upon the world of classical scholarship with an impact comparable to that of Darwin's origin of species in another field so he's building up by analogies and parallels from classical literature, a fascinating and detailed picture of the taboos and superstitions of primeval man. You might begin to see where some of the controversies might come in, um, but it's been revised and expanded a number of times. It's still very popular and it is, I think, probably a classic work to be referred to when studying this kind of, these the subjects and these themes. Um, he's collected a huge amount of uh, detail, a lot of different facts and myths and stories and practices from all around the world. So it's it's big, It's there's a lot in there. It's something I feel I need to read so that I can have read it and be aware of it going forward with my own uh, studies into these these topics, rather than perhaps something I will regard as the epitome of scholarship on, on such matters. So yeah, the Golden Bough is something I'm dipping into in fits and starts, shall we say. Okay, so I'm now coming on to my last two books in my pile. This is moving more away from mysticism and magic generally, and more into the specifics of witchcraft with a very modern slant. Uh, I was in Waterstones one day looking for something to read. I, I needed to pick something up because I was going to be without a book and I hadn't brought anything into town with me, wanted something to read over lunch. So I was scouring the, I think, mind, body and spirit shelves. And I came across this by Lisa Lister. It's entitled Witch, Unleashed, Untamed, Unapologetic. Now, Lisa Lister is a witch. She's a modern day witch. She's, I think, a third generation witch. She's from a family of travellers and she has a lot of history, particularly within the, if you like, the matriarchal line within her family. So she was brought up at her grandmother's knee. Her grandmother would make teas, herbal teas, and carry out various other practices that a modern witch would carry out. It's, it's a fascinating look at both history of witchcraft, history of the treatment of witches, practices of uh, witches in times gone by and modern day practices. Number of different ways in which people these days can practice witchcraft. There's anything from a wicca to gin witch or a shaman or a traveller or a hedge witch, green eco witches and so on. So it's a really interesting look at if you're just wanting to learn about witchcraft and the, the practice of it in the modern day, uh, the connections with paganism and so on. But it also it gives people advice and suggestions for anyone wanting to start out their own witchcraft and magic practice uh, with information about different types of herbs, um, crystals, the wheel of the year and different holidays and sabbats, uh, words and spell casting. It's for, for people who might think all of that is a load of rubbish, then don't bother picking it up. It's taken seriously. This is something that is a practice for many people. And if you're interested and just a little bit curious to see what it's all about, is there anything to it? Then I would say, yeah, pick it up and have, it, have a read. It's a really easy read. It's not archaic. It's not the Golden Bow. It is not J.G. Fraser by any means, but it's a really good read and I got through it very quickly. Um, so that by Lisa Lister is 
an excellent choice, I think. And that is the one that I have completed reading. So that one's on my red pile, not my to read pile or my reading pile. So that, that's a success in my book. Uh, the last one I'm going to come on to is another one about witchcraft. And this one is specifically, well, it's called Welsh Witchcraft. A guide to the spirits lore and lore? Why did I say lore? Um, L-O-R-E. It's got an R in, not L-A-W. A guide to the spirits lore and magic of Wales. And it's by Mara Starling, who also is a witch, a Welsh witch. So she's specifically writing about her practice. I haven't got very far with this one. So um, I, I think it's similar to Lisa Lister's book in that there's a bit about the history of witchcraft and witches in Wales and um, also a bit about practice if you want to carry out your own practice. But Mara Starling was born in Anglesey, well she was born in Wales, so she was raised on Anglesey, she's a native Welsh speaker. So it's quite interesting I think because a lot of magic and witchcraft when it's practiced um, there's a lot of significance placed or importance placed on your connection with the land and your heritage and where you come from and what your your cultural background is and what you relate to, what traditions you feel at home in, uh, you're coming out as your more authentic self. So she obviously wanted to produce a book that was specifically about her Welsh heritage and the practice of magic in that kind of context. So this is something, obviously, I live in Wales. It's something that's very, very appealing to me. I'm really quite interested to know how these practices are carried out within this this particular country that I'm living in. So that's something I, as I say, I've only just started, but I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. Yeah, I've got a lovely pile here of all my mystical and magic books. I definitely want to go away and read a little bit more about Hilma Af Klint in particular um, from the exhibition. I found her work spoke to me a little more than Mondrian's, but I didn't realise that Mondrian had also done landscapes. I, I thought he was just about the colourful geometric shapes. So that was something I also found out. I hope that it's been vaguely interesting. And I'm sure Paul will put in the show notes the details of the books in case you want to look any of them up. And I will be really interested to know if you have any thoughts on you know, what I've spoken about or if you have any further suggestions for me to, to read other works on, on this subject. That would be great. And I hope to catch up with you in the next episode. Thank you. Bye. So uh, tell me, Holly, what have you been reading? Because you're sort of um, meant to be on vacation and um, uh, not reading lots of stuff for your course. Um, no, I've been reading like, oh, my voice broke. I've been reading um, a lot for fun. Not so much so in the past, like, week and a half of the holiday, but especially like the first half, like, and I was traveling around a bit. So I read quite a lot then um, and it was nice to like I love studying but it was really nice to kind of branch out especially like read more modern books um, one of them and this I've heard a lot of people call this like the book of the summer it's tomorrow mm. and tomorrow and tomorrow by Gabrielle Zinn. oh yeah the book is so good it's kind of it's very like character based and you really get into them and it's the first book I've had in ages where I, I cared so much about them I didn't even care how it was going to end I just wanted to like see their lives and both of them are involved in like making video games. And it's so, I think it's just such a smart decision because not only is that just a cool thing, but it also impacts the way that the characters see the world sometimes. And, and it is so, like, there's a chapter kind of that's gone through. It's like both the characters are playing a video game and it kind of 
so it's like the one chapter is written from the point of view of as if they're the characters in the game and then most of it is like if something happens to like the main guy character this bad things happens to him and when he's moving through the world he kind of imagines it as if it's like a video game and like making choices and stuff in his head and I know that can sound like some people I read on Goodreads like the reviews because I love reading the reviews on Goodreads and some people found that to be a bit annoying but it didn't happen loads and I thought it made it really interesting that in times of like trauma or like a really like high intensity moment that the characters kind of resort to this that was awesome and also the cover's really interesting I think it's very cool but also I read Melmoth while on holiday as well by Sarah Perry first Sarah Perry book I've read um, I've previously been to like a class of hers at Gladstones and she is just the coolest person ever um, <laughs> and it was really interesting to read Melmoth because it wasn't what I thought it would be and at first I was like oh this isn't kind of how I thought this would go you know you've got a lot of jumping around different people's like narratives and I kind of thought it would be more about Melmoth herself having like I thought you'd get more of like a one-on-one -on -one time developing her story forward or something I really liked what it actually was like. And it was the cool lesson of like, let the book be what the book is. And mm. once I stopped mm. trying to hope that it would go in a certain way, I I loved it. I really liked the, the whole gothicness of it. It was so cool. Different to the Essex Serpent, isn't it? Yeah, I haven't actually read the Essex Serpent. Oh, you haven't read yeah, that? I really okay. want to read it. It looks really good. Yeah. I think but you'll enjoy it when you get I'm there, assuming. yeah. I've got it glittering away on my shelf somewhere. I would definitely pick that up. Um, <laughs> and the last book I want to shout out about, which... I'm glad my my mom died by Jet McCurdy is the best like mm. was it autobiography or biography I can't remember autobiography I think um like I've ever read yeah yeah it's yeah. so good um, I feel like you'd enjoy it even if you don't know who she is because like I grew up watching iCarly it was like my favorite show for so long and she's one of the main characters in it it was like a Nickelodeon show and it was so interesting hearing about like her life because she didn't come back for the reboot and I was like well, I wonder why she didn't do that and then like reading about her whole life it's like oof. and you read the title it's like quite a I mean it's quite a harsh title and I don't know if you've seen mm. the cover of it it's her holding holding an urn it's quite it's quite shocking oh my god very, seriously yeah yeah and she's like smiling and it's pink it's it's like oh my gosh and then you open it and what I think was so what I really liked about it I listened to an audiobook of it actually she's very good at narrating it um is that she when she talks about it she doesn't look back well, she is obviously looking back, but she it's like almost at point she writes as if she is that age, like she writes as if yeah. she's five again. So when her mum is doing these damaging things or her mum's like pushing her to eat really, really awfully, she she's not like looking back and saying, and I now know this is bad. It's kind of looking, she looks, she's still looking up to her mum at that point. Mm. And it's so effective to kind of hear the voice of like a seven-year-old or a 12-year-old thinking these things and I think that was so smart instead of doing it almost like looking back you're like you really feel like you're growing up with her and hearing like a child defend these actions was like oh because I, I wasn't I didn't expect that because I thought that the people kind of vetting it or like vetoing it would have been mm. like oh you can't say that in case people think you're promoting it but I think it's very obvious that the seven-year-old narrator at that point is not promoting these things it's just it's so good even if you might not enjoy it as much if you don't like have an interest in her, but I I really liked that because I've read a couple similar books written by people about themselves and it kind of felt like they're just going on because they yeah. could. Whereas I feel like hers, like I was really invested. It was very good. You, you've, you've sold it to me, actually. I think I, 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 I totally agree with you. I, I like um, 
let's call it authentic biography because because so many yeah. people are writing their biography to give a reflection of themselves that they want people to see this sounds like it's authentic that she's well you know given the cover that you've just described to yeah. me i mean wow <laughs> yeah there's actually a lot of love in there like i think that's what yeah. is, that's why I, I should have said is that even though she knows that what her mum did is wrong when you open it you do sense that like love and the hatred but it was really yeah. weird to like go from seeing that and then opening the first page and being like, oh, why is she talking about loving her mum? She's just said she's glad that she's died. So, well, and you know, the thing, the, the thing, what do they say? They say, um, you know, you, you don't, um, you don't necessarily like your family, um, but uh, very often you'll love them, but you don't like them. Um, and that's uh, that sounds interesting. You well, while you were talking, it reminds me a little bit. And this is this is fiction now. But Jeanette Winterson's um, oranges are not the only fruit, oh, um, yeah. which are based. It's basically it is fiction, but is very very strongly based yeah. on her real experience. And her the mother her mother is awful, absolutely awful, and her upbringing was awful in many ways. But yet there is a certain love there as well so it reminds me very much of that so um yeah have, have you read uh, orange is not the only fruit i have i read it like years and years ago and i want to read it again because every time i hear the title i'm like that is such a good title and i loved the book um yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, it's yeah, yeah. well that, it tr triggers me that, that yeah it's i think it's a book worth rereading actually yeah it's not very if long i either, had the so. time if I didn't do book podcasts where people come on and t talk about excellent books and I think, oh, I want to read that, I never, <laughs> I never get time to reread them. So, well, is that you've you've been having a very uh, enjoyable reading summer, haven't you? It's been um, it's been quite fun. I think I've I've been reassessing like what what it is that I enjoy because doing first year English yeah. done, it's like I've got so much that I care about now, but it's like also I I don't want to narrow it down yet, so I just wanted to to cool. kind of yeah. explore the modern stuff more and i'm glad i did it's very fun yeah you need to you need to hold on to that for the rest of rest of your life you know just don't 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 get too channeled down into things well i'm, I'm gonna go complete my, my, i've got a couple of recommendations i i'm i've been i i have been going on a bit well this is Wrexham library for you um I tend to sort of come across things on the internet or read a book review and think, oh, that looks interesting, or prize lists are the things that are killers, because I'll think, oh, well, if it's run a prize, it's worth reading. I have no idea why I ordered this book, all right? <laughs> yeah, no pie, no priest. It look, The front cover is a bit like um, uh, 19th century sort of election poster, that sort of thing. and. It's a journey through the folk sports of Britain. <laughs> okay, so you might be wondering, this is by Harry Pearson. So he's a, um, a sports journalist, and the way he writes is very much how you would expect a sports journalist to write. Some of it, yeah, no, no, he's good. He's very sort of jokey, and he can tell a good story. But th what this is basically about are some of those things that have existed in this country for centuries, like um, shinty, have you heard of shinty, Holly? Ever played shinty? I don't think I have. No, I'm trying. No. When I was at school, bearing in mind I went to school in the southeast of England in the 1960s and 70s, they made us play shinty, which is apparently a Highland game 
replicating the uh, rutting of red deer. Um, and we used to play it with what looked like walking sticks, you know, old wooden walking sticks and a very hard wooden ball. And unlike hockey, you're allowed to raise the stick as high as you like. And uh, actually hitting the ball is important. And if you hit someone else, it doesn't matter. Uh, so so that, it's, a, it's an unbelievably rough, but there's a league still going on in the Highlands of Scotland. But yeah, well, and here's another one, right? Have you ever heard of stool ball? That's stool, as well, in no, what you sit I wasn't on. Born and born in ball. the 18th century, so I'm not, I'm not aware of these things. <laughs> <laughs> My teachers in secondary school used to have, the children didn't play it, but they used to have their own stool ball competitions. And this goes back to medieval times, apparently, when milkmaids apparently would hang milk stools up on the tree as kind of wickets. And so it's a little bit like cricket, a cross between cricket and rounders, and uh, always considered to be a, a game that ladies could play and is mainly played by women now. And there's a league that goes on mainly in Sussex still. Um, you can see how I, I'm totally absorbed in this book. I mean, you know, how on earth some of this stuff survives. It almost makes me want to go and watch some of these sports. And um, yeah. yeah, and then there's the uh, crazy things, you know, like when they roll cheese, the big cheeses down the hill in Gloucestershire. Have you seen that? No, but oh, I you, want to do that. Yeah, you need to go to YouTube and look up uh, cheese rolling in Gloucestershire. It's insane. Do they put like so, a little uh, it, wrap around the cheese? Because do they eat it? No, no, they're wheels, great they big like... wheels of cheese and they roll them down a hill uh, in, in the hilly bit of Gloucestershire. And these people, men and I think women, all dive down and some people se severely injure themselves um, rolling down this hill after the cheese. It's quite a dangerous <laughs> sport. I know, I know, awesome. I know. It's, uh, and then there's the, the uh, loads of towns have this gay uh, thing that happens on um, uh, Shrove Tuesday, just before Easter, where uh, it's sort of the origins of football. So they kind of chuck a football into the middle of um, a crowd who then sort of people who live down one side of the town and people who live the other side of the town or come from rival villages and they can go on for days and days and days until the ball is taken to wherever it is. Um, yeah, yeah, these things carry on to this day. It's a good excuse for drinking and violence, as far as oh, I can yeah. see. A bit like football, football and rugby, you know carry on um, but uh, seriously i'm not really selling this book very well but it, it's just <laughs> i think you are it, i really think you are do you <laughs> think i am okay i think it says something about britain as a country and the little bit of ex eccentricities uh, and uh, our history and some of the mythologies of our country as well it just shows that we're not afraid of making ourselves look completely stupid sometimes <laughs> It's brilliant though. Look, it's only it's only two hundred and fifty pages long, uh, and I'm reading it really quickly. And um, then I wanted to give a shout out for Simon McCleave, who is a local crime writer and a patron of the uh, Wrexham Carnival of Words. And he uh, came to the carnival the year, not this year, last year, um, and did one of his first uh, interviews in front of an audience, and he was brilliant. 
And I was just here thinking, oh, yes, I've read one of your books and I found I hadn't. And I've literally just come to it now. His very first book is called The Snowdonia Killings and is set in North Wales. And uh, his detective is Ruth Hunter, who is sick of being um, a detective in South London where there's two murders a week. And uh, she's recently, her partner had disappeared mysteriously got on a train and never reappeared. So she's fed up with life in London and thinks coming to lovely rural North Wales will mean that there's only like a bit of sheep rustling and um, maybe the odd thing, thing stolen here and there and maybe a, a murder once a year. But of course, as soon as she arrives, the first thing that happens is a murder. And he's fictionalised a town that uh, we know very well called Wrexham, but he's called it Clamcastle. And you can tell it's Wrexham because it's got the old police tower in it and the swimming pool and things. And he's he's been very clever. He's twisted the geography of North Wales in a very subtle way, almost that I know some of the roads that we're going down in this car chase and then thinking, no, hang on a minute, that's not right. But he's done it to speed things up. That's but cool. one of the things, yeah, and plot is fantastic. Um, so it's the murder of a deputy head teacher. There's also a, a very dodgy Cub Scout leader as well. Oh, yes, it's all in there. And um, characters, the characters are brilliant. Um, interaction between them is great. The plot is great. And the thing I love, to, love about it, every so often Ruth is going along, they're, they're sort of tracking down uh, another witness or going to an interview and they're driving through, well, where we live, beautiful North Wales. And she's going, wow. I didn't know this was so amazing, you know, the countryside around here. So good on Simon McCleave. It's a fantastic advert for North Wales. Obviously, there's a lot of murders, but, you know, it's probably it's not really like that. Not, not entirely. Uh, but I, I big shout out for that. I shall be reading. I think there's about 16 books in the series. The latest one that's literally just come out is called The Wrexham Killings. It's a must, I've seen isn't that it? Out a lot. It's um, yeah. I noticed it by the train station the other day, and yeah. I, you know, it just catches your eye, and all I saw was racks and killings. I was like, oh my god! And then I saw it. It's like, oh, oh, oh. Um, because like, you, there's a whole I, window. And the other one, a very quick shout out to this uh, is a very very small book. I mean, we're talking. Well, it's an essay, really. It's a t and it's a tiny book. I haven't got it with me. It's a tiny, tiny book like this. Um, and it's called, with a very long title, called Why We Should Read Children's Books Even Though You Are Older and Wiser by Catherine Rundle. And uh, it kind of goes back to what we were saying at the beginning of the show and Pat's comments about um, uh, children's books. Uh, and I, she, she also says amazing things about librarians and how important it is to have um, people involved uh, when you're picking books to read because like booksellers as well where people say oh you like that then you're going to like this or and not not to say oh well you're a child you can't read this but I, I a very as a very quick read I read it in a couple of hours and um, it uh, inspires me just to add lots of children's books new and old to my pile well you can't see it on a podcast but part of my pile is behind me most of the books on the shelves right. behind me are to be read 
Well, thank you. Thank you, Holly. Um, thank you, everyone, for, for listening to this episode of Bookalicious. And um, you know where to find us. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and then you'll pop up on your phone or your laptop or wherever you do your podcasting thing. And uh, don't you must listen to us. We're really good. We've got Please great do. people. Please. We, we, we are. We are global as well. Thank you, Pat. You make us global over there in California. So I hope you uh, all have uh, are having a good summer. If it is summer here in the UK, I'm not entirely convinced it is, but there you are. Um, if it's raining, even better excuse to just get in and read a book. Um, and we'll be back in a week or two's time. So uh, in the meantime, wish you all happy reading. <laughs>